Okay, friends, welcome. Thank you for being here. We're very excited to learn with you tonight. And given that we're approaching Pesach, I mean, we always do this, but we'll have a big chance for questions. We hope the questions on the topic tonight, and of course, many questions not on topic, as we like to ask also. And so um, before we get to our speaker tonight, so, okay, well, well first, let's, um, I, I want to call my colleague, uh, Fred Rabbi Andy, because just say a few words about his congregants uh, and friends in Carolina. <laughs> Delight to be here with all of you, and especially with you, Stan and Cheryl. Uh, Shmuley asked me to share. Stan, Cheryl, I'm so grateful to be able to have this moment to just share some love with both of you, because the two of you are phenomenal. You know, we talk about on the at the Passover Seder about the four children, uh, the one that we all want, the wise, and uh, and some others. And, and you are the wisest of the wise, the givingest of the givers, the, the greatest of the great. And, and the truth is that the, what you bring to our congregation with your smiles, with your energy, you know, a couple stories. Okay, first, I remember Cheryl, when the two of us, for that first time we did that service together at Bethel, where uh, Ortzion and Bethel had a service together. And so we're walking around your old stomping grounds and you show me the picture from when Stan was president of the synagogue a number of years ago. And I look at him and I say, he hasn't changed. And you looked at me and said, I know. And, uh, and, and Cheryl, you have just stepped up in so many ways to help me, honest to everybody. Um, Cheryl called and we were in the process of trying to look for uh, an assistant for myself and the other clergy at the synagogue. And she said, you know, Rabbi, while there's not somebody in that role, I have a few hours a week. Can I come and, and help you out? And I have to tell you, there would be no artwork on the walls of my office. There would be no organization in, in my office at all. There's so many wonderful conversations that we have because Cheryl, you dedicate and give your time so generously. And Stan, it happened relatively recently that I got a phone call less than 24 hours before Shabbat that somebody who had uh, been planning to read Torah for us that Shabbat morning was not going to be able to do it. And the first call we made was to Stan Hammerman who said, it's a lot, but I'm gonna learn it and I'm gonna lane for the congregation. And again and again, each of you step up when asked. Each of you do so much. I, I know that my installation when it happens is gonna be amazing because two of the three co-chairs are Stan and Cheryl Hammerman. And uh, you know, the, the Pirkei Avot teaches us uh, that we should make for ourselves a teacher and find ourselves a friend. And, uh, and you found me, you were on the search committee that brought me to this community. And, uh, and you didn't just find a rabbi and I didn't just find congregants. I truly found friends in both of you. And I'm so grateful to you, Stan and Cheryl, for all that you do to elevate our community, for all that you do uh, to encourage Jewish learning in the most robust way, for all the ways in which you dedicate and give of your time, of your resources, of your souls to all of us who are blessed to call you friends. Thank you, Stan and Cheryl. So without further ado, Stan and Cheryl, where Stan is going to introduce our wonderful speaker right now, who I feel awful for having kept turning away to look at the Harrimans, um, Rabbi Tolushkin. Who, uh, uh, I was looking at them too. Well, with good reason. Yeah, my voice isn't as loud as uh, Rabbi Green's, but I'll, I'll raise it a little bit tonight. Thank you so much for your kind words, Rabbi. Um, in your short time here, You've, all, you've had such a major impact on, on Cheryl and myself, on the congregation, on the Jewish community. And for those of you who don't know him, you will, you will get to know him because he will be an outstanding member and leader in our Jewish community. 
uh, I know you will continue to flourish and we look forward to that. I also wanna thank uh, Temple Solel for their hospitality tonight. Temple Solel has been with Valley Bay Midrash from the beginning. And I would be remiss if I didn't thank, I know Rabbi Linder's not here, but I, I wanna thank him for his friendship and his support over the years too. He's really been outstanding. So I'm honored tonight to introduce our scholar, uh, Rabbi Joseph Teleshkin, uh, a best-selling author, a speaker, a man who has the innate ability to take Jewish texts and explain how these texts can guide us and make us not just better Jews, but better citizens of the world. And Rabbi Teleshkin was educated at Columbia University, Yeshiva University, probably elsewhere that I don't know about, but uh, he's been an active, he was an active letter, a leader in the student struggle for Soviet Jewry. We remember him from way back then. He's led congregations throughout the country. He led uh, Brandeis Bardeen. He's, he is, I personally, have, I've seen you speak probably three or four times. Uh, I attended a, a couple of uh, meetings, one at the Jewish Federation here where you and Dennis Prager spoke and then at Bethel where you spoke and you came for Valley Bay Madrash in 2016. So we, wow. we're, we're so glad to have you back. Thank you. So just so about 20 years ago, a good friend of mine uh, gave me the book of Jewish values written mm -hmm. by you and he had it signed by you. Mm -hmm. And I said, Rabbi Teleshkin's coming. I'm going to look at that book just to refresh my recollection a little bit. And uh, so, so I reviewed it and I'm looking at it. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, Pesach's coming up. So during Pesach, we asked the four questions in this book, Rabbi, you asked the four questions to Jews. What's, what are God's questions to Jews? So I'll just go through that real quickly. No, don't go through that real quickly. I'm going to be speaking about that. <laughs> Slowly, that's it. I'm sorry, it just jumped at me. You know, I'm, I'm no, it's a, it's a great chapter. It is. That's why I'm sharing all of you. So, but it'll be a little anticlimactic. So I wanted you to know, I'm very moved that you remembered it. And I owe you a debt of gratitude. This is an instance where silence is gold. <laughs> well, anyway, I was paying attention. I'm going to just, I'll just make them real concise. Because one of the, the first question. Oh, please, I, I know, I'm really serious. You're going to, you're going to, no, you're no, no, it's, a, it's half of my speech. It's yeah. half of your speech? I, I don't want to. Or a third of my speech. No, no, I'm not going to. Okay, thank I you. I read it, I studied it. Okay, good. I enjoyed it. And, uh, and I promise and everyone I will spend else. time with you at, at the end of the evening talking about it. Yeah. Well, you can do that. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to go there. Okay. But there are other chapters in the book. The, I think think about anything else. That's pretty amazing that I put that chapter. But right. anyway, uh, but the, the one, one of the, your last questions that God asked the Jewish people is, have you hoped for the world's redemption? And uh, that doesn't mean you just hope. Uh, that means you do. Yeah. And uh, that's what Valerie Bates has been doing for years mm -hmm. uh, with social action, social justice, with bringing in Jewish educators and scholars such as yourself. So, and I, that, and I, our goal and your goal and what you said in your book is to make the world a better place. And I know that you, through your teachers, have made a better place. Oh, so, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, that has very rarely ever happened to me. Somebody's <laughs> introducing me. And they're about to say, hey, this is one of the things I learned from Rabbi Tzolishkin, and now you're going to learn it from me. Tzolishkin <laughs> is going to be very silent. Okay, thank you. No, I'm moved by what you said. Okay, one of the sad things that happened to Jewish life in modernity 
is that the word religious came to be associated exclusively with ritual observance. So if two Jews are speaking about a third, a not uncommon occurrence in Jewish life, and the question is raised, is so-and-so religious? The answer invariably is just based on ritual observance. He keeps Shabbat, he keeps kosher, he is religious, she doesn't keep Shabbat, she doesn't, she's not. From which one could form the very peculiar impression that in Judaism, ethics are an extracurricular activity. A nice thing, but not really, really that significant. And I think that that's had a very deleterious effect on the perception of Judaism for many Jews. And so I'm going to start, but having just opened up the way I opened up, that so many people put such emphasis on the rituals of Judaism, I want to say something. The rituals are very essential. I'm a ritually observant Jew. And I'll tell you, I'll give you three reasons why I think rituals are so essential, even though I'm obviously then going to be speaking very much about those other four uh, uh, questions. Without rituals, we wouldn't have a sense of holiness. Rituals are really what bring holiness into our lives. I remember many years ago, I was speaking to Abraham Tversky, Allah Shalom. Abraham Tversky was a remarkable figure. How many of you have ever read any of his books? He was a psychiatrist, but he also was a Hasidic Rebbe, though he really worked in psychiatry and he did a lot of work in combating and treating alcoholism. Tversky was the youngest of five children. It was a family, it was a Hasidic family in Milwaukee and they had five sons and he was the youngest of the five sons. And the parents had a tradition, you know, according to Jewish law, the Sabbath has to be inaugurated with the lighting of how many candles? Two, not supposed to just light one, you're supposed to light two. But did any of you grow up in households as I did in which an additional candle was lit for each of the children? Okay, you did, my parents did it. Uh, it's just my sister and me, so they lit four candles. Tversky grew up in a household, and so when he was born, an additional candle was lit because he was the fifth uh, child. And he said, it was very meaningful to me to know that because I existed, every Friday night there was more light in my parents' household. And what Tversky, of course, really was referring to was the power of ritual to speak the language of poetry. Obviously, all parents will tell their child how much they love them, but that symbolic act turned out to be very, very meaningful to him. And a lot of the acts, of, of the sacred acts, how many of you, I'm curious, in Jewish life, that has tended to be a decline in observance. So I'm just curious, in terms of ritual observance, how many of you are basically at the same level of ritual observance as the house in which you grew up? How many of you are more observant than your parents were? Okay, then something. And how many of you are less, or if you don't want to answer, okay. One custom in Judaism, it's not a mandated law, that I think actually is more widely observed today than perhaps in the past, is the blessing of children. Uh, in my household, it wasn't done every Shabbat, it was done before the major holidays, particularly before Yom Kippur. But now many people do it on Friday nights. And as some of you probably know, how does the blessing go? What do you say to daughters? You can call it out in English. Yeah, may God make you like Sarah, uh, like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. So then logically, what should the blessing to boys be? 
Yeah, may God make you like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it's not. What is it? May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, the real reason for that is because if you look in the Bible, I think it's in Genesis chapter, it's either 48 or 49, I think it's 48. Jacob actually blesses Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And he recites, you know, the, the very blessing that we still recite. But I once heard, uh, I think it was Shlomo Riskin, I once heard him speaking about it. He said, the other reason is we have reason to believe they actually got along, whereas all the other brothers in the Bible didn't get along. May God make you like Cain and Abel. <laughs> May God, you know, you can imagine like Jacob and Esau. Uh, but I remember years ago, I read a book. Have any of you familiar with this book? It's called My Grandfather's Blessings by Rachel Naomi Remen. Okay, since only a couple of people are, I would advise you to go on Amazon tonight and look up. It's a beautiful book. Rachel uh, Remen is, a, is a, I'm not sure if she's still with us, but, uh, but Rachel Remen is, is a doctor and she tells in that book, this is just one story. She has a lot, it's a very good story to tell, but a, a, a true story, I'm not, I'm not saying she's made up. She grew up in a household that was quite secular and very ambitious. And she said it was the sort of household where if she came home with a 98 on an exam, her father would say, what happened to the other two points? Okay, I see some people obviously grew up in similar households. And she said, I spent a good part of my adolescent and later you know, teenage years pursuing those two points. The one place where she didn't feel she was judged like that was in her grandfather's house. On Fridays, she used to go to her grandfather's house after school and she'd stay there for a couple of hours. And unlike her parents, her grandfather, who I believe was the mother's father, was a pretty pious Jew. And he would give her that blessing. May God make you like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. But he added on something. And ever since I read this in Remen's book, and I read it at the time when my own children were very young, he would add on something she had done that week of which she was proud and of which she could be proud. So when she was very small, that she was able to stay in a room with the uh, lights extinguished, you know, and, and not be afraid. You know, later on, something she had done in school that was good or something she had done that didn't work out well, but she had tried hard. And the great tragedy of her youth was when her grandfather died when she was only seven. Mm -hmm. And she said, in addition to missing him very, very much, she also was in terror. Who now was going to present her to God? And she says something so beautiful. She said, I learned that when you're blessed, you remain blessed forever. Years later, to Remen's great surprise, her mother, who was then in her 80s, and who had always been a pretty secular sort of person, suddenly started lighting Shabbat candles, was drawn to that ritual. And one Friday night, Remen was with her mother, and they were talking about it. And she had never told her mother the story of the blessings her grandfather used to give her. And she told her mother, and her mother said something so poignant and beautiful. She said, Rachel, I want you to know that I have blessed you every day of your life. Only unlike your grandfather, I did not have the wisdom to say the blessings out loud. And that's, you know, a very, very important thing. You know, certainly if 
people grow up in a household where the parents are very willing to be critical. You know, it'd also be very wonderful if they would say the blessings out loud. So one of the powers of rituals is they introduce holiness in power life. Another power of ritual is continuity. Michael Walter, the Princeton professor, argued that the story of the Exodus, and he documents it, uh, influenced more movements of social change in history than any other piece of writing. But I believe that if the Jews didn't commemorate that exodus from Egypt with a Seder every year, the book still would influence a lot of people, but I don't think we as a people would exist any longer. Because the rituals are how we continue it from generation to generation. Unless you're a convert who obviously came to Judaism at a more mature point in your life, everybody else, all, all the other Jews, basically, they didn't learn about the Seder from books. They learned about it from attending satyrs when they were children. And it was interesting, you know, that's where they were encouraged to ask questions. I, I, I would love to know if like Barbara Streisand, probably her first public performance was the age of three or four, saying, the, or Bette Midler, saying the four questions. You know, and that's how they learned about it. And that's how Jews continued. I'm gonna ask you a question. Show your hands, you don't have to call it out. How many people here know on what date of the year George Washington was born. Okay, it's all older people. And the reason we all know it, and I'm including myself in that category, so I'm not uh, saying anything that could bother anybody. Because when we were growing up, we all knew Lincoln was born on February 12th and Washington was born on February 22nd. And we got off from school throughout the United States. In the South, they didn't get off on Lincoln's birthday, but, uh, but in the rest of the country, they did. By the way, uh, I don't believe in astrology. Is anybody here an astrological fan? Okay, but I, I wanna tell you something that I just once noticed. I, I didn't see it written anywhere. Abraham Lincoln was born on February 12th, 1809. Do you know that on that same date, February, if you know, don't call it out. I want people to maybe see if they can guess it. On that same date, February 12th, 1809, a person I would argue who is, is as famous as Lincoln, which is not easy, was born on February 12th, 1809. Anybody? Okay, if you know it, call it out. Charles Darwin. <laughs> Just interesting to have two such famous people born on the same day. But... Younger people don't know it because they ended up doing away with Washington's birthday and they established the President's Day, which is supposed to honor all presidents, but which in effect really doesn't honor any, you know, just people get a day off from school and, uh, you know, their store sales. Can you imagine if a group of rabbis got together and say, hey, you know how we could increase attendance at Shul on Yom Kippur? Let's standardize the day. Let's make it the first Sunday in October. Would there be an increase in attendance? I don't think so. I think what would gradually happen is there would be a fall off in attendance because part of the power of a ritual is that your life has to address to the ritual. If the ritual can be dispensed with or, or, mod or modified, so then it no longer has any sense of sanctity about it. I mean, this has led to an odd phenomenon in Jewish life. You realize that in over 3,000 years, it has never, ever happened that the Jewish holidays fell on time. <laughs> the holidays are early this year. The holidays are late this year. 
So, but that has a lot to do with Jewish continuity. And also rituals are capable of transmitting ethical lessons. I remember my friend Dennis Prager told me that when he was six years old, the first words he learned to read in English were pure vegetable shortening only. <laughs> he said, it was not a terrible thing to learn at the age of six that I couldn't have every candy bar in the candy store. No, it was a, a lesson in self-discipline. But having said that, however, we get back to the issue of what exactly then is the role of ethics in Judaism. They're very, very central. Right? I had one point here. What happened is I had cataract surgery a few months ago. And ever since I need to have two different pairs of glasses uh, for my reading. Uh, and I think I brought the wrong one. Wait, let me see. Okay, now the rest, uh, now for about the next 10 or 12 minutes, I'm gonna be quoting your introduction. <laughs> The very famous story in the Talmud, of course, you know, where a non-Jew comes to Hillel and wants Judaism uh, summarized while standing on one foot, that very same page in the Talmud also has the rabbis discussing what are the first questions we're asked uh, when we die and come before the heavenly court. If you're not familiar with the passage, normally I just say no rabbis are allowed to answer, but now no synagogue leaders here. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, what would you guess the rabbi's conjecture is the first question we're asked after we die and come before the heavenly court? If you know it, don't call it out. But so guess what it might be. Okay, believe me, I'm not going to embarrass anybody if they get a wrong guess. You know it though, don't you? Yes. So don't answer. Uh, okay. So somebody take a guess. How would you make how would you make a difference? Okay, how did you make a difference? Were what did you do uh, that could make a difference? Were you good in business? Wait, wait, wait. Okay. That's a that's an interesting one. Not not were you an ethical business person, but were you good were you in business? <laughs> right. Okay, but you knew it. You just guessed it? We didn't discuss this. You did or didn't discuss your introduction. I'm very impressed. Uh, you know, I've done this for years. And, wow. Okay, we'll get to that. Wait, what was the first question? What did you do to make, you know, that reminds me of uh, a wealthy but extremely stingy man uh, suddenly came before the heavenly court and it came out that this guy never gave any charity at all. And it was looking very dire for him. But finally, he did remember that once on an extremely cold winter morning, he had gone out and he had seen a poor man without a coat begging and he'd given the guy a quarter and he mentions this and then the booming voice comes from the heavenly court give the guy his quarterback and tell him to go to hell <laughs> the actual question is this is great this is an impressive couple over here i mean rabbi green was saying how impressive they were okay yes the first question is did you carry out your business affairs honestly and you know, one of the books uh, that cites the Talmudic rabbis, obviously the book you most associate with the Talmud is the Gemara itself, but there's also a book, Tosefta, which has other collections of it. And in terms of speaking about honesty, they said there are two particularly evil forms of dishonesty, of, of fraud, or and what would you, what, what do you think they might, might have guessed them to be? I mean, here you can, you don't have to be, you don't even have to try and guess what the rabbi said. What would strike you as particularly evil forms of dishonesty? Okay, taking advantage of poor people. I think that's, that would be a good one. Yes, yes, you're right. That's actually a law in the Torah that you have to really uh, 
Make sure your scales are very honest. Yes, that is a law in the Torah. The Tosefta says one is being dishonest in the dealings with non-Jews. Because they were very conscious of the fact that how Jews acted towards non-Jews influenced how non-Jews view Jews, but also how they view Judaism. There's a remarkable passage in a book, I think it's an 11th or 12th century work. I'm calling for any of the rabbis here. No, the Smag, the Sefer Mitzvot Gadol. And there's a passage there, which is gonna shock you. Maybe I shouldn't be so sure, but okay. Where it says a Jew should be particularly scrupulous in his business dealings with non-Jews, lest a Jew cheat a non-Jew and try and guess and fill in what the rest is. You know, we would think, you know, unless it, it causes anti-Semitism or something like that. No, what he actually writes is, lest the Jew cheat a non-Jew and the non-Jew conclude as a result that it's to never think about converting to Judaism because it obviously is not a religion that produces good people. You know, no one would think that, you know, that Jews at that time were still interested in such a thing. So one is not to be dishonest with non-Jews. And another one is a different form of stealing, though you're right. I think you should, we should also put in uh, the one about particularly cheating poor people, but, it, but I'm quoting the passage, so it doesn't really say that. What it does say, Gezel Harabim, somebody who commits fraud against a lot of people. You see, if you cheat another individual, there is the possibility that you will recognize that you did something very wrong. And as a result, repent. You know, you'll pay the money back to the person and you won't act like that again. And that's considered a proper repentance. But if you steal from the many, you know, if you engage, let's say, in some sort of stock market fraud that, you know, drives up the price of a stock based on, you know, not real information, and then you make a, a lot of money and other people then lose a lot of money, you can't ever really repent because you're not going to find all the people who were cheated. I remember I once uh, got a letter from, I was doing an ethics advice column. I got a letter from a guy who had been a taxi driver. And apparently for years, he specialized in picking up Japanese tourists and like three or four people would get into his taxi. It was before COVID. So sometimes you can have four people in a New York taxi. And uh, at the end of the ride, he would point to the meter and said, yes, that's for each of you. And he now realized he had done a terrible thing and he wanted to repent. And I said, there's no real repentance that you can actually do. I encouraged them. I said, maybe develop some sort of charitable thing in Japan. But you know, you can't always undo. That's why you should always think carefully. I, I once came across a comment that somebody made, I don't remember who it was. He said, it's easier to repent of sins after we have committed them than to repent before we commit them. You know, if people would realize that if they're going to they're going to do something, then they can't undo it. Okay, I'll try again. With my, oh, doesn't matter. I think these are the glasses that are working somewhat better. Uh, okay, so that's the uh, the first thing about Nasata that you conduct your business affairs honestly, and also what's interesting is that the rabbis figured that that might be a temptation to many people. I'm not going to say it's a temptation to many Jews. But we know that historically, Jews who were convicted of crimes were, were more likely to be convicted of white collar crimes than non-Jews. You know, Jews are always proud of the fact we had less crimes of violence. But when Jews did commit crimes, they usually were white collar crimes. And it struck me as an interesting thing, because in Hebrew, 
And I'm not saying that Jews did it in excess of other groups, but we didn't think of ourselves as necessarily being better in that regard than other groups. And it's interesting because in Hebrew, there's no higher appellation than to call a person a chacham, a wise man. Among Sephardic Jews, that's another term for a rabbi. And we know that the term in Hebrew for a scholar is a talmid chacham, one who's a student of the wise. But in Yiddish, the word chacham has a different connotation. Oh, these are real chacham. You mean somebody who's a trickster? Uh, because people can use their wisdom, you know, and use it in other ways. Okay, the second question the rabbis said that is going to be posed to us, when I get to the fourth, I'll let you speak a little more on it. <laughs> now you understand why I got nervous. I'm sitting up here and you're starting this introduction. Kavate itim la Torah. Did you set aside time to study Torah? And this is also an interesting question. If anybody has a good answer to this, I'd love to hear it. I think there's a natural tendency for, how many of you consider yourselves to be passionately political? That you're passionate on political issues. Okay, how many of you uh, who are passionate on political issues generally tend on the liberal side of the issues? Okay, and how many of you are conservatives and passionate? Okay, one hand is raised so cautiously. <laughs> okay. What I find generally happens when people are passionate, and but this comment is addressed to passionate conservatives and to passionate liberals. I'm not isolating one group because I think it tends to be true. We tend to just try and remember things out of the Jewish writings that support our positions that we already came to. So in a certain sense, you know, one could argue that our religion could be our liberalism or our conservatism, and then we just look for things that reinforce it. So I always like to ask people a question. I don't have a great answer to this myself, but have you ever come across teachings in Judaism that challenge your political uh, views? I mean, and teachings that you have some respect for. I mean, you can always find some odd statements made in Jewish sources that are not so impressive, you know, very extreme. But have any of you come across teachings in Judaism that challenge your uh, you? And I think that's a very good thing for people to be on the lookout for, because that's, I think, one of the ways in which we could expand. I mean, I'll give an example here. Okay, given uh, that there are a lot more liberals here than conservatives. Uh, if your liberalism, let's say, is rooted in the idea that human beings are inherently good, uh, and if you really look at Jewish sources, there's a lot of skepticism about human nature, which in a sense is the whole rationale for the halachic system. You know, if people really are naturally good and generous, you don't have to have all these laws on the giving of tzedakah and other things. Uh, and, you know, it's based on a verse early on in the Bible, Lotov it's not good for men. To, uh, uh, no, that, that's not the verse I wanted. It, uh, there are advantages in certain ways to being 73. I can't come up with any of that, but, but I've been told that there are such advantages. Uh, you know what happens when you get older? If you're lucky, I mean, unless God forbid you get ill, but your mind becomes like a slow computer. You know, we're so used to computers coming up. I always think I, in my 20s, moved to Los Angeles and I tried out for Jeopardy. 
and I got to a certain level uh, where I was considered, but you know, then I didn't, then I didn't get it. And I always thought at the time, by the way, if you're a woman who's very good in general knowledge, because a lot more of the people who got close, you know, were men. Uh, but you know, now they they should if they do a Jeopardy show that has older contestants, they like you have to be a minimum of sixty, because I just don't have that you know same level of speed. And my memory isn't as good, which is why I'm now forgetting why I started telling you this thing about Jeopardy. Without <laughs> the point that I was making. Wait, what was I talking about before I stupidly wandered off? You were asking. Oh yeah, about human yeah about human nature. So it's interesting. If people were naturally good, so you'd walk into a house and you'd hear a mother reprimanding her three-year-old son. Johnny, stop giving all your toys away to the other children in the neighborhood. You know, kids have to be have to be taught, you know, to be better because human beings, understandably, are born, you know, somewhat selfish. But if you really believe people are naturally good, you're probably going to be more apt to favor value-free education. Because if people are naturally good, just knowing the facts, they're going to choose to do the right thing. But the general tendency in a religious life is you want to teach the values and find ways to implement them. Now, again, you know, you can do it on either side, conservative and liberals. And I, unfortunately, I think we, we've reached the stage in America where we no longer look to people who hold different political views and see if there's something we can learn from them. Uh, I think one of the things that has led to it is the fact of the internet, which you can only read things that you already agree with. Now, it used to be you got your news on television, there were three networks, and you could hear you know, more differing views, but now you don't have to. But anyway, but you got to set aside time to study Torah. And, uh, and, you know, the rabbis are very insistent on that. The third question is, did you try to create a family? Now, again, first of all, not everybody can. Uh, you know, some people, there are issues that come up and they can't have children. But the goal and the idea was that people, and if, you know, and I, I, if people tell me they really don't want to have children, I, I do not try and convince them because I think people should only have children if they really want to have children. Otherwise, you know, because raising children, we all know, has its own challenges and its own heartaches and it has its own wonderful things. But the goal was to transmit certain values from generation to generation. And that can only happen if Jews are replacing and more than replacing themselves. Now, in almost all secular societies, people are having fewer and fewer children. I mean, there's been a lot written about this in relation to Europe, uh, where people are not really replacing themselves. Interestingly, the only country I know in which secular people have on the average three children is Israel. It's very interesting that secular Israelis in that regard, now obviously in the Orthodox and what we call the ultra-Orthodox world, people often have very large families. I have a friend, my only really close friend in the Haredi world who has 18 children. Now, it, and from one wife. Uh, in part it came about because there was a real tendency towards multiple births. I think there were three sets of twins and I think one or certainly at least one set of triplets uh, within the family. Uh, but leaving that aside, 
even secular Israelis tend to have it because there's a real love of and appreciation of children. So the rabbis want that. They want people to replace themselves. There's an argument in the Talmud. Everybody's in agreement that people, if it's within their capacity, should have at least two children. Uh, Shammai says you have to have at least two male sons. Doesn't sound to me like that could lead to its own problems. You know, Hillel says you have to have a child of each sex, which, you know, cannot, is not, again, within everybody's power. We know the problems could lead to, because remember, there was a policy in China for many years of uh, only allowing people to have one child. And in a society like that, where people are only allowed to have one child, there was a greater preference for males. And in the age range, I think of now between like 35 and 55, there are like 20 million more men uh, than women. You know, you know, which raises an interesting issue in a society that restricts uh, people to only having one child, should abortion be restricted? You know, it's a very weird thing because the reason for the abortion in that child is a very anti-feminist reason. They were doing it because if they could only have one child, they didn't want to have a girl. You know, so, so it's an oddity, but the idea was they wanted the perpetuation. Okay, so what we notice here is the first three questions are all micro. These are all personal issues. Did you personally act honestly in business? Did you personally study Torah? Did you personally try and create a family? The fourth question, which is, redemption. yeah, did you hope for the world's redemption? See, Pitali Yeshua. Did you be, and what that I think points out is we're supposed to first work on ourselves, but the point of working on ourselves is then to work on the whole world. You know, you want children growing up loving their family in the hope that that will also lead them to being, you know, more loving sorts of people. So Tipita Yeshua, and like Eddie was telling me when he picked me up today, I'm sorry that Shmuley had to walk out for something because I want to say something very nice about him. Uh, I mean, it's not that. It's recorded. Oh, okay, it's being recorded. Okay, you know, he he established the standard in Kashrut of also insisting on the ethical treatment of employees in the process of Kashrut. Because what I, again, you know, with what I was saying earlier about people tended to get obsessed with rituals. So they were obsessed that were all the rituals of Kashrut carried out properly. And some of them have an ethical upshot, some don't. One that has an ethical upshot is that the knife that the slaughterer has to use has to be a very sharp knife, no way blunted, so that the animal can be killed as quickly as possible. You know, but there are animals that, for example, I don't think veal should be regarded as kosher because the animals are terribly mistreated from a very, very young age in order to produce this very tender meat. And it's always bothered me, you know, that that's allowed to, uh, to be kosher. And then Shmuley, to his great credit, and Eddie was telling me more about this, uh, also said, well, what about the way the workers are treated? So you can go into a butcher shop and, and, or a restaurant and people are being paid. Let's say they're here. Oh, Shmuley, you're coming back. I've been speaking very nicely about you for the last few minutes. I was speaking about the fourth question of Sipitali Yeshua, and, and you're creating a stand. And you so I said the first three questions are micro questions. Were you personally honest in business? Did you personally study Torah? Did you personally try and create a family? 
but did you hope for the world's redemption? And I was talking about what you've done by establishing a new standard of kashrut and making, and I know that the uh, caterer whose food we're eating tonight is specifically because he fulfills those standards. He's a Yemenite Jew, right? Is that the one that we're doing tonight? But, you know, but the, do you realize how everything gets elevated when you think in those terms? So the goal of the micro is obviously to make us pleasant ethical people in our personal lives, but it's also because we then really can contribute something to the world. And we have, so Tzipitel Yeshua then becomes like the culminating factor. Now, I mentioned earlier uh, that on the same page of the Talmud is that famous story about Hillel and the non-Jew. Anybody who knows that story, and I don't, it can't be rabbis, and now there's at least one lay person who can't answer. <laughs> Anybody uh, who, who how many of you are basically familiar with the story where Hillel explains Judaism to a non-Jew while standing on one foot? Uh, tell me the story as you know it. And believe me, if somebody makes any errors, I think you can sense I'm not the sort of person who's going to start humiliating anybody. But there's a common misconception about that story. And I want to see. So anybody who knows the story, okay, go for it. Okay, great. It's a very accurate answer. But what was the question? What was the question the non-Jew posed to, to Hillel? Okay, so as you replied, can you teach me the essence of Torah while I'm standing on one foot? To which Hillel replies, Sani, what's hateful unto you, don't do unto your neighbor. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Zeal Gemar, now go and study. I think that if we see, for example, a rabbi in dialogue with a, with a minister, a Protestant minister or a Catholic priest and a, and a Muslim imam, we would more or less sense that that would be a comfortable answer for all of them or anything that would emphasize the ethical. But the actual question, because people rarely look up the story in the Talmud, the actual question the non-Jew said to Hillel was, Gayareni almanat, convert me to Judaism on condition that you can teach me the Torah while I'm standing on one foot. And it was answered in response to that question, can you convert me to Judaism, that Hillel starts with that ethical principle and then converts the man. Now, obviously, Hillel was acting in a very optimistic way. Maybe he was assuming if the man was being converted in the context of a Jewish society, he's going to continue learning and he'll learn more. I was once at an event in which uh, Adin Steinzels, one of the great Talmidei Chachamim, great scholars, a man who actually translated the Talmud in its entirety with commentary from Aramaic into Hebrew. I mean, Aramaic and Hebrew have a lot of similarities, but believe me, just knowing Hebrew does not make it easy to study the Talmud. And I was one of three people who was honored to uh, be asked to ask Steinzoltz a question. And Adin Steinzoltz, who, Allah Shalom, was a wonderful scholar, but also could sometimes be a little sharp. Uh, I asked him a question and got him really angry at me. I said, doesn't that story about Hillel answering the guy who wants to convert indicate that we should become much more liberal in our accepting of converts? And Steinzoltz got really irritated. Uh, I, I won't quote exactly what he said because it, it could end up sounding offensive. But, uh, you know, but he said, nobody would have a standard like that today. What do you think? But, I, you know, all I 
naively tried to defend myself by saying, I'm just quoting the Talmud. But it obviously meant that there was a greater openness and it shows the centrality of the ethical, say hello. Because the guy says, convert me to Judaism and he starts with the ethical. And why I think does he do that? I think because he wanted to establish a common language with the person. If you start only with things, how did it come about that such emphasis got placed on the ritual? I think a lot of the rabbis were so fearful of assimilation that they wanted to emphasize that which made Jews different from everybody else. And the ethics, you know, in some ways we could have in common with others. And I think they, to some extent, underplayed it. I remember I once heard a rabbi for whom Rabbi and I have the greatest of admiration, Yitz Greenberg. I have a number of words of wisdom of Yitz that I've popularized. One of them was, I don't care what denomination in Judaism you belong to as long as you're ashamed of it. Less well known is another statement of Yitz's. He said, if we Jews are 5% better than the rest of the world, we can be an oral agoyim, a light unto the nations. If we're 25% better than the rest of the world, we can bring the Messiah. If we're 50% better than the rest of the world, we'll be dead. <laughs> because you have to live in a world where they have to be able to really defend yourself and, you know, and to do so. And, okay, now I've done the terrible thing again. What was I talking about? Because obviously it was something that Yitz said that I was thinking of. Okay, Shmuley, I know what a disciple you are of Yitz Greenberg. So did you ever hear Yitz make this comment? When I went to YU, I majored in history, which meant I majored in Yitz Greenberg. He was the head of the history department at YU. And it was very funny because he had gotten his PhD in US history uh, from Harvard. And then he started offering among the first courses ever offered at the college level on the Holocaust. He had classes that dealt with Musser. And the dean of the school said, we brought you from Harvard because we want to show what a great college we are and that we have a Harvard PhD teaching American, Jew American history. They didn't bring him in to be a Jewish historian, but that's where, uh, you know, where, where Yitz's thinking was taking him. Oh, so Yitz, once in speaking about 19th century reform Judaism, said versus the Chassam Sofer, who was an exponent of right-wing Orthodox Judaism, Kol Chadash Asurman Torah, anything new is forbidden by the Torah. It's a complicated issue, but it was a pun that he was making. He said, the Orthodox made the right error, but it was an error by putting their central emphasis on the ritual. Because he said the reform were putting that emphasis on the ethical, and it led to tremendous numbers of them ending up converting to Christianity and, and believing it to be more ethical or believing that they didn't want, you know, as Heine put it, it's your entrance ticket uh, to civilization and believing, okay, so there's enough in Jesus that we could appropriate. And of course you could feel, you know, because Jesus was of course also Jewish. Uh, so that's the point. But I, so that's why I started with the importance of ritual. But we got to get back to the fact, to the centrality of the ethical. And, but I'm going to conclude, okay, I'll conclude with one final thought. When Jesus was asked to summarize his teachings, I think it's in the Gospel of Matthew, but it might be in more than one Gospel, he cites two teachings. Does anybody know what they are? He cites love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God. So he cites two biblical verses. A hundred years later, Akiva says, love your neighbor as yourself. 
this is a principle or this is the, no this is a major principle or the major principle of the torah hillel lived before both of them from what we can ascertain we don't have the precise data but it would seem that hillel probably died around 10 bce so why do you think hillel didn't unlike jesus who cited love your neighbor as yourself and akiba who cited that what do you think might be the reason he came up with a, a negative formulation what's hateful unto you don't do unto your neighbor the rest is commentary i'm really throwing it out because there's no definitive i have a thought but there's no definitive answer to that but why do you think he did it yes okay i think it's pretty close to what my formulation is going to be what you're saying you know love is too broad to you know and it, it really is too broad i mean do you know that you know god forbid you read about abusive parents and there are abusive parents who actually claim that they love their children and you know and if you can love somebody and be abusive then the word love obviously is emptied of all meaning so but i what i think hillel was doing is love your neighbor as yourself had the unfortunate fate of becoming a cliche you know think about it when you're reading a novel and on every page there's a cliched expression you're probably going to put the book down but if you think about it every cliche was originally an original insight that's why it became a cliche people like to quote it but then once it became a cliche so i think that was the fate of love your neighbor as yourself so i think that if hillel had said to the guy yes and the essence of judaism is love your neighbor as yourself i think the guy would have thanked hillel walked out of his office or whatever he had his study hall and immediately forgotten it. Uh, and I'll tell you why I say that. I would guess every single person in this room probably heard that teaching, love your neighbors yourself before the age of 10. How many of you, I'm now asking a different question. How many of you in the last month, when you had to decide how to act in an ethical situation, how many of you in reaching your conclusion thought of the verse, love your neighbor as yourself and how it would apply to this? No hands are going up. Usually I get one or two, but because it became a cliche. But Hillel's formulation, as you were also uh, maintaining, also was a fresh way of formulating it. If everybody here for the next 24 hours really thought of, before they took any action of what's hateful unto you, don't do unto your neighbor, let's say for the next week, because it might not come up in a 24 hour period, I think that would actually affect our behavior more. And so that's what I think Hillel was trying to do. So what I'm trying to do in my work, because I am, I am a pretty religiously observant Jew, but I want to look also, number one, for what I think was Judaism's contribution. People often say Judaism's contribution was monotheism. But monotheism in and of itself is just an arithmetic reduction of the number of gods from many gods to one god. I think Judaism's contribution was ethical monotheism. You know, people can believe in God, but the God that they believe in could demand of them to do very unethical things. So I think ethical monotheism was the great Jewish contribution. I think it's important that Jewish thinkers think in those terms. I also think it has the capacity to bring many more Jews to think enthusiastically about Judaism in their lives. And I think it would make an impression on the broader world in which we live. And that's the thought I want to leave you with. Thank you very much. Amazing. Thank you so much.
So um, before we get to questions from our Zoom friends and questions from uh, folks here, um, I'll, I'll kick us off a little bit. Okay. Um, so as you know well, and as to remind friends, there are th in, in moral philosophy, there's three primary kind of camps of frameworks of how we think of moral dilemmas. We have deontology. So we think about rules um, and duties and obligations. Then we have consequentialism or utilitarianism. You think about the outcomes. And then we have virtue ethics, where we think about the virtues we bring. So I wonder if you think any of those three are um, more dominantly Jewish in our, uh, and more, more authentically Jewish in our tradition. And to play out one case today, um, so if you, if, if you know the famous trolley case, you're yeah. on a trolley, and if you are passively going straight, you'll kill five people. And if you actively shift tracks, you will actively kill one. So the deontologist says, um, well, of course you have to keep going straight. I don't care how many are killed, you can't actively kill someone. And the consequentialist says, no, of course it's, it's, it's less bad to kill one than five. So to apply that to Russia today, I, from a Jewish ethics framework, from a principled perspective, of course you gotta fight the bully, right? You gotta fight the bully. And from a utilitarian perspective, more people die if you fight the bully, so you stop fighting. So I wonder, so, I mean, do you think any of those three are more authentically Jewish and how would you apply that to that, that foreign policy crisis today? I think the second question is in a sense more interesting because it's always when you're forced to actually apply it to something that it that it comes out. So I assume what you mean is, is that if we respond to Russia very aggressively, we risk having a nuclear war. Which is why, by the way, it's a very interesting thing, why the desire to not see nuclear arms proliferate, and now it's probably too late, is so dangerous. I'll just give you one example. Devorah, my wife and I were actually in India. Uh, one of our daughters at the time was uh, a follower of Amma. Any of you know Amma, the hugging saint? Yeah. Okay, and she not, she is not at this point a follower of Amma, but I've been hugged by Amma. It's considered a big honor. She always gave me an apple. But uh, at that same trip, we also we spent a week on Amma's. I was going to say on Amma's kibbutz, you know, on Amma's uh, <laughs> ashram. And then we brought Rebecca with us to the Chabad house in Mumbai. And the couple we stayed with were the very couple who six months later were, were murdered. And my friend, Dory Gold, who had been roommates uh, at Columbia and Dory- At the Bayit? Bayit? Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. roommates in the Bayit. And Dory went on to have, he was the director general of the foreign ministry. And he told me after that event, because remember it was obviously not only the Chabad couple who were killed, those terrorists had gone into like the fanciest hotel in Mumbai and many, many people were killed. And a high level Israeli general was meeting with high level Indian generals. And he said, but you knew where the terrorists place was, you know, their central place. Why didn't you bomb it? And he said, the government forbade us because Pakistan has, uh, uh, has nuclear weapons. It also made me think about something else doing you know so what should we do with russia you know with all the sanctions and other things and uh and what we're doing and we got very angry you know what should russian jews do and some of the russian jews have aligned themselves with putin because they're afraid you know and a lot of us are very angry at the germans from the 1930s for not i'm not talking about the germans who joined the ss i mean obviously there's, that's just total wickedness. But the average German was probably just very scared uh, to do anything. And it just made me just think about, uh, think about that. 
so you know what? I suppose everything you got, you have to take into account some of it, the ontological, you know, what, what the law would say, but then the, you see, because even when you get to the practical impact, if it unleashed a war, so then if it unleashed an atomic war and millions of people died, would that necessarily represent a more moral solution? So it's very often hard really to define morality. I think you can all recognize that he asked me a very, very good question and I'm giving a very stumbling answer. Does anybody have a better uh, answer than I as to what do you think would have been, what do you think would be the morally appropriate response for America to do? I'm assuming at the moment that there are probably very few or no people here who have a warm regard for Putin. Putin, by the way, is an interesting phenomenon to me because in general, I find that people who are anti-Semites are terrible people in many ways. Many people suffer as a result of it. Putin is a rare phenomenon where he actually is not an anti-Semite. He has certainly not been bad to the Jews. You know, and he's told uh, the Chabad rabbi in Moscow that it had to do with the fact that when he was a kid, he was very poor and there was a religious Jewish family that used to give him food. And also there was a Jewish woman who was a teacher of his. And when he visited Israel, he actually went to this woman's house. I think he even bought her a house. So, you know, these are heartwarming stories, but you know, the other, I, this is a level of evil that's, uh, that's hard to fathom. So does anybody, I want to offer, does anybody have something other than what the United States has done? Does anybody have any different thoughts on what the United States should have done? What you, you think would have been the morally appropriate thing? Okay, yeah, so I think we're all in agreement, but the question is- The bystander. Yes, oh wait, so I missed. What was the point then? Oh yeah, so she's saying the right of self-defense, the obligation of self-defense, and our dilemma is, is the third part, not the- Yeah, I actually don't think it's so bad, you know, what Lindsey Graham is saying that we should back anybody who wants to assassinate Putin. You know, it, it's interesting, he got jumped on by two people on the far left and on the far right of the Democratic Party. Ilan Omar uh, sharply criticized him. And what's that woman's name, Green? I mean, nothing to do with it. Yes, you wouldn't know the name. No, so I thought- No, it's spelled the same way. <laughs> no, so I thought it was interesting to my mind, that, you know, because what he said, I think, was utterly appropriate. Halavai, you know, that somebody, imagine somebody assassinated Hitler in 1937. And my reasoning is this, no Hitler, no Holocaust. I don't think any other Russian leader would have initiated and done what Putin did. So if there was no Putin, it, it wouldn't happen. And it's a good chance even if he was killed, you know, now it might, it might stop it. But does anybody have any other thoughts about what the United States, let's say, should do? Because we all, you know, most of us grew up having a certain amount of anger and, and there was some real basis for it because by the summer of 1944, the allies had unchallenged air superiority over Germany. So they really could have bombed uh, the railroad tracks and other things. But here, you're right, you know, Putin is just crazy enough to use the, you know, to use the atom bomb, he thought he was going to lose. So he would say like Samson, let me die with the Philistines, you know, let them die. You know, the only, uh, I don't have that many friends who are big Trump supporters, but their argument, they keep saying Putin wouldn't have done it with Trump because he thinks Trump is so crazy. Who knows how he'll respond. <laughs> but, uh, but does anybody 
have any other thoughts on what the United States should do morally. Yes. So just to repeat for Zoom, because we're getting some feedback that morality, uh, Andy is suggesting, has to be tempered with pragmatism. Yeah, right. And sometimes it's very unlucky, like for the Ukrainians. Okay, we're going to move to our next question. question. I'm sorry for the folks on Zoom who can't hear the comments. So let's hear from another question here. Yes, David. Okay, apologies to our Zoom friends. That's really hard to recapture. <laughs> um, but um, David David asks, well, isn't part of the moral calculation how we um, how the Russian population is treated with sanctions? And he argues that that, that would be morally appropriate. And I think that's a question for you as well. Yeah, uh, because otherwise Putin could just go on doing whatever he wants. I mean, you know, in the case of Nazi Germany, it was a little easier because Hitler had come into power through an election. Now, the truth is he didn't get a majority of the vote, but he manipulated things. But there were a lot of Germans who supported him. And in his early years, as he was doing very well, more and more did. We have no idea really what the Soviet citizens are thinking. But if we held off putting any pressure on them, what would happen? Okay, let me ask a question. I'm just curious. Based on what you we now know, how many of you think in retrospect Truman made the right decision in dropping an atom bomb on Hiroshima. And how many of you think it was the wrong decision? Okay. Now he made his calculation was that uh, it was estimated that uh, 500,000 to a million American troops would be killed in the effort to end the war. And obviously a lot of Japanese, you know, would also be killed. But you, you, you could really see the arguments on both sides. Strangely enough, I'm going to tell you something. I, there's an amazing book. Go and get it on Amazon. This book was written 20 years ago by a man named Jonathan Glover. Glover is a professor of, I don't know if he still is, but he's a professor of philosophy at Cambridge. And he wrote a book called Humanity, A Moral History of the 20th Century. And he starts the book with the assumption that philosophy will become utterly irrelevant if it takes no cognizance of history. And he shows many, many terrible things that have happened in the 20th century. And in it, he reveals, I think it's there that I read it, a detail I'd never heard of. Eisenhower had actually opposed dropping the atom bomb. Eisenhower said, this is a terrible weapon. I don't want the United States to be, you know, the first country who does it. I happen to have agreed with what Truman did, but, you know, there are certain, in life, we don't always have a choice between good and bad. Sometimes you have a choice between horrible and less horrible. By the way, I want to just say one other comment about Eisenhower, because I grew up in a typical, pretty liberal Jewish household, which loved Adlai Stevenson, because Adlai Stevenson was incredibly bright. He was funny. In the 1960 election, when Norman Vincent Peale, a very popular, you know, man known for the power of positive thinking, came out against Kennedy because he was a Catholic. Uh, So Stevenson, with his great wit said, I find Peale a Calling and Paul appealing, <laughs> you know, and he was known for coming up with things like that, you know, and Eisenhower, I think among most Jews was thought of as pretty much of an intellectual lightweight. So I want to tell you something that I came across when Eisenhower liberated the first concentration camp that was liberated by the Americans, Eisenhower went in and said, and did a very detailed inspection of it. He said, Patton wouldn't go in. Patton was afraid he'd throw up. He would you know, get so sick of, it, sick of it. Eisenhower in April, 1945, writes to, uh, to Marshall, who, you know, the head of the army, 
He said, I made an inspection so that I could be in a position should there arise a movement in the future to deny the Holocaust. He didn't call the Holocaust because it wasn't called that. To deny the truth of these things, I want to be able to show that I saw it with my own eyes, which was very far-seeing. You know, there's that teaching, one who can foresee the, the consequences, you know, of his actions. So it just, uh, I was just very impressed with that because it's not how I was raised to think about Eisenhower. Yes, no, that's an important point, but it goes back to what you were saying, David, to what extent do citizens bear responsibility if their government does very evil acts? But if we free them from any responsibility, then there's nothing to inhibit their governments, you know, from doing very unethical acts. But you're right, I, you know, with your deontological and others. Yeah. No, I, I, it is a, it raises a very interesting question. To what extent are citizens responsible for actions carried out? Which is why, by the way, you can argue that in, the, in a democracy, people have more moral responsibility mm -hmm. because they have the ability to vote in a government or vote out of government. Great, so we have three, three questions I see here. Rabbi Nitzan Stein-Koken, yes. Great, I, I, great. so Rabbi Nitzan Stein-Koken's question here is, um, how can Judaism help us to live a better life, engage more civically? Actually, Rabbi Tillichkin is finishing a book on this topic now. So. Yes. What I'd want to say is Jews have made extraordinary contributions to American life. I mean, if you start thinking of all the areas in which Jews have made amazing contributions, but they generally have not made it as Jews. Jews are very right. rarely have made it in the name of Judaism. That's why years ago, it never really went anywhere. But I was able to get two senators, uh, one of whom you're not surprised to learn was Joe Lieberman, and the other was a Republican, Connie Mack. I wanted it to be a, bilat a bilateral thing uh, to establish a national speak no evil day in the United States based on the laws of Lashon Hara. I wanted Jews to contribute something to American society and to do it as Jews. So I think it becomes important that people use values drawn from Judaism and make it known that they're drawn from Judaism. And obviously we're appealing to other people as well. I mean, that, that's how I think can do it. Also, if it got attention in the media, there are a lot of Jews who don't show up in synagogue. You know, there are a lot of Jews who, who if the media was suddenly taking a Jewish idea seriously, they would be exposed to it in a way they otherwise wouldn't be. Okay. Okay, great. So yeah, Pat, yeah. let's hold that as a question for our dessert that everyone can return to because um, uh, it's, it's an awesome question and I want to keep going. Yeah, yes, yes, Nick. Yes, Nick. It'll be fun while we're having dessert. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, have a good time. Yeah, Nick. Great. So just, sorry, sorry, friends in the room. I know the hybrid's kind of complicated. Patricia asked, what if Putin then goes into Poland? Um, like what it, what will the red line be? And she's really disturbed about this moment. And we're going to have that as a fun conversation at dessert. And then Nicholas Hummel says, how can we teach Jewish law better so that young, young Jews uh, want to be immersed and, and in love with, with, with the most traditional side of our. Well, I, one thing people want to enjoy life. And if halacha is presented to people as being very restrictive, it's not going to work. I, you know, I spent five years of my life writing researching and writing a book about Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And I'll tell you an interesting thing about uh, Chabad. It's the only major movement in, Jew in Jewish life that has never put particular emphasis on the Holocaust. 
And I think he intuited something, which it, there's no question that in the, I, look, I was born in 1948. So there's no question that in the aftermath of the Holocaust, this was probably the, that and the creation of Israel were the two most significant events that happened. But by the time you get to the third and fourth generation, the Holocaust, despite what you think, is only going to attract people to Judaism if they're convinced uh, that nothing like that will ever happen again. You know, the Holocaust could as much motivate people to want to assimilate. You know, the Nazis were unique in the history of anti-Semites in that they traced back four generations to find out if you were Jewish. But I think the re if you really think what Chabad did was they always put their emphasis on joyful things, you know, on, on, on parties, on, uh, uh, you know, on Shabbat, you know, making it a very joyful occasion. Uh, Lima Torah even, you know, was done in a, in a joyful way, making a big deal out of, you know, Purim and the other holidays. They would give it Jewish content, but they emphasized the, Jew, the joy of it. And I think that's what we have to do because otherwise, people tend to think of religion as being more restrictive. Now, they also didn't go so far in just emphasizing the joy that they stripped it of all, you know, of all content. And I say it only because, listen, I was, I was growing up in the 1950s. My grandfather, who was a pretty prominent Orthodox sage, you know, had a, had a shul that we would go to. And I used to see Chabad Hasidim. They would come to that shul on Simchus Torah and dance. And believe me, I never thought this movement had any future in America. It, you know, I'd see these young men with beards, you know, acting nicely and acting very, you know, joyfully, but it seemed so at variance. And yet they did something, they, you know, they, and I think it's because they exemplified a certain joy in it. When I was working on the book, uh, Deborah would say to me, you were at 770 today. That's the headquarters of Chabad, weren't you? And I said, why do you say that? Because you're in a good mood. And Chabadniks are very optimistic. And they are, look, and they've had losses. I mean, they've had, you know, terrible losses. And it's not, and the Rebbe, you know, once in response to a question where an enormous amount of money, a cousin of his was involved in directing a very large amount of money to be used to build a Holocaust memorial in, in France. And the Rebbe said, I think it's, I think if you really want to do honor to the Jews who died there, I wouldn't do it for a Holocaust memorial. I would do it to try and ensure that the next generation of Jews remain Jewish. And, you know, it is an interesting thing because in Jewish studies departments, the percentage of courses on the Holocaust probably is a very significant percentage. And I'm not sure what it ends up, you know, I, I don't want to, see the Holocaust, God forbid, in any way minimized. It's an interesting phenomenon to account for what accounts for Chabad's expansion. Great. Let's take one more question if we have one. Yes, please. It's an interesting question. No, there, there really is an insufficient amount uh, in the Jewish literature on disabilities. It, but I think it was also in the more general literature as well. I mean, the worst thing was disabilities this is terrible, what I'm going to say. But disabilities were often viewed as like a punishment from God. And, uh, you know, if somebody was depicted, let's say, as only having two fingers or something, usually it turned out he was a bad person, you know. And the whole idea that bad people were often ugly people, you know, and or, or afflicted. So 
I, I think there has been a movement in Judaism of recognition of a greater recognition that a variety of different types of impairments uh, are very, very common. But you're right, I don't think it's true. You're right, Jesus is depicted as curing uh, blind people who had, you know, who had faith in him. But I, I don't know. You know what? You asked a good question, and I have not thought it through enough. Well, to, to, to bring some of our last VBM classes into the conversation as well, we had a, a disability scholar from Georgetown um, who, who recently uh, spoke at VBM, and she argued a minority viewpoint in, dis in disability scholarship around uh, that we should talk about care, not cure. Um, and that it's offensive in the disabilities community to, to talk about cure. And yet Isaiah's prophecy is actually that disabilities will be cured. And so Yitz Greenberg, bring him back in, argued against that minority viewpoint that actually the Jewish prophetic uh, and, and messianic vision is for the curing ultimately of disabilities. Although there's a growing trend that he acknowledges in disability studies um, to honor disabilities as, um, as a value as opposed to uh, something to be cured. So um, we, that, that we can discuss at dessert as well. Um, so we, we have some closing words from Cheryl Hammerman and then, some, and then the final words from Rabbi Steele. And then we welcome you to the courtyard for dessert, which is already set up out there. So. I first and foremost want to thank you all for coming and for supporting, continuing to support Valley Bay Midrash, which has been just a, a wonderful, a wonderful program and help amazing growth, Jewish growth and learning for our community. Uh, Rabbi Talushkin, thank you. You've made your incredible learning. You've, you've helped us with your teaching. You've helped us to learn even more. And it's been thank a you. pleasure to listen to you as always, as I've heard you much. much before. Uh, Rabbi Steele and Temple Solo, thank you so much for, again for hosting us. Rabbi Green, for your very, very kind words. And uh, Shuli, what can I say? Thank you for doing all of this. And uh, we are very appreciative. And hope well, I want to say what an honor it has been to have you on this BIMA. Thank you so oh, much God. for Thank your you. words. And for anybody who doesn't know, if you want a one volume uh, book that has depth and that's so accessible on Jewish literacy, biblical literacy, um, Jewish ethics, Jewish humor, Rabbi Telushkin's books are the place to go. Um, and it so doesn't, Thank you. <laughs> I, I really believe that it doesn't matter if you're reformed, conservative or orthodox, um, you make your books accessible and meaningful to all. So really appreciate that Good. so very much. Thank you. And for us at Solel, this is the first community event that we've had since COVID. So I would love it if we would yes. I would love to do a Shehekiana if you guys would with me. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Shehekiana Rikiyamanu Rikiyamanu Lazman Hazer Amen. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Yeah, thank you so much. Good.